0: Well, let's, let's look at Numbers 31, and uh, let's, let's look at some of the, some hard truths here in this passage and think through them. And if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together uh, this morning. Numbers 31, reading from the English Standard Version. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary, and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword, and the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian, and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods, all their cities and the places where they lived, and all the encampments they burned with fire, and they and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of men and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho." Moses and Eleazar, the priest, and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp, and Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord, against against the lord in the in in an in incident of pure and so the plague came among the congregation of the lord now therefore kill, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by line with him but all the young girls who have not known man by line with him keep alive for yourselves and camp outside the camp for 7 days whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day. And on the seventh day, you shall purify every garment, every article of, of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. You may be seated. May God instruct us through his word this morning. And and Father, we do ask your, your special grace on us. We, we thank you for those Uh, in our church, who are involved in in ministries of of caring for the fatherless. We thank you for those who have been involved in making great sacrifices so that we could exist in this culture, in this country at this moment. We pray your blessing on on those who have have made great sacrifices, and we pray for your grace again as we just look at these truths in your word this morning. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine from high school recently challenged one of his friends to respond to an article that he had posted on Facebook, and the article was was really kind of this, this argument against the idea of God's judgment, specifically God's eternal judgment, the article attacked God's, the idea of God's judgment, and it coined this term, theological whopper. And in the author's mind, a theological whopper was, was an idea, a theological idea that went against what our intellect would tell us or what our our sense of morality would tell us, or what our sense of, of common sense would tell us, and so a theological whopper is an idea, according to this this author, that that we look at and say, boy, that's that's a truth that's presented by Orthodox Christianity, but it's, it shouldn't be true because intellectually, morally, just based on my common sense, I I need to reject that. And this author of the article said the greatest theological whopper of all is the idea of God's eternal judgment. The idea that a, that a God would judge people for eternity just goes against our intellect, it goes our sense of, against our sense of morality, it goes against common sense. And the author said even someone as, as terrible as, as, as Hitler, like the, the worst person you can imagine, surely after billions and billions of years of torment, uh, doesn't deserve more. Now, Obviously, I I reject the argument of the article, yet at the same time, I I understand the intellectual or emotional problem that the author has. You know, we we use the the phrase, uh, mind-blown, very casually, like, oh man, we have the same birthday, wow, mind-blown, right? Right? but there are some truths in scripture about god and his character that i that i come to and my mind does struggle to comprehend my mind feels like it's it's ripped apart as i as i keep on trying okay this is what this says, and this is what this says, and boy, I, now what, it's hard to, to go beyond some, some point. My mind struggles with some things, and certainly passages that deal with God's judgment, not just his eternal judgment, but his, his temporal judgment, his, his judgment in a moment of time. The, these passages, like this passage this morning, they're passages that I, I wrestle with. And maybe that's that's true for you as well. You come to passages that talk about God's judgment and you say, boy, I, I trust God, I believe in God, I have faith in his son Jesus, but this is a hard text. And that's where I find myself sometimes. It's where many of us find ourselves and we're not alone. We see examples of of men and women in the Old Testament and New Testament who struggle with these things as well. Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, he is he begins his his short uh, prophetic work by by complaining to God. He's saying, God, I, I I don't understand how the leaders of Judah can be so terrible. They're they're wicked people. And and God says, Yeah, Habakkuk, I know. I'm going to deal with it. The Babylonians are coming. And, and Habakkuk goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. <laughs> yeah, I mean. We're bad, but, I mean, the Babylonians, those guys are, like, super bad. How are we going to use those guys to deal with us? In fact, listen to what he says. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my, my Holy One? We shall not die. In other words, this, this doesn't sound right. You're not going to judge us this way by those people. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Like, okay, yeah, we're bad. And I I, yeah, I mean, I, I did mention to you that I wanted you to deal with this, but the Babylonians, how can the, the people who are wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? He struggles with that. In the New Testament, you see Paul in the book of Romans, and, and he's, remember we talked about uh, last week, he talks about God's wrath in the book of Romans, and he talks about the provision of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then he comes to Romans chapter nine, and he hits this—he hits this this hard spot. He says, "Okay, all that I said I, I've true, but I also have to admit, what about the Jews? How can it be that there's this there's God's wrath coming, and there's this amazing provision in Jesus Christ, and the Jews have rejected?" He says, "I, I I'm 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 telling the truth." I have unceasing anguish in my heart as I think about this. Paul also wrestles with this idea of God's judgment. What's happening, I think, is this. We believe that God is good, and in his goodness, he loves people, humanity. And yet at the same time, we believe that God is good, and in his goodness, he's going to deal with sin. In fact, he is going to deal with sin in a, a heart-wrenching, breathtaking finality. I mean, that's how God is going to deal with sin. And so as we, we think about these, these truths, and our minds wrestle with them, when we think about God's judgment, our, our mind is kind of blown, in a sense. It's, it's, it's ripped apart as we think about, okay, how do, I, how do I process all these things? I don't understand how all these things fit together. Here's kind of the central idea that I want you to think about with me this morning. My inability, my inability to understand God's judgment teaches me that I have much to learn about my sin, God's holiness, and the gift of his salvation in Christ. This morning as we talk about God's judgment, we are not going to solve all of the intellectual problems that we may have with, with the concept of God's judgment. We're not going to be able to, to fully understand the mind of God and all of these things and, and to wrestle with the emotional implications. We're not going to get there. But, but we are, as we wrestle with these things, what, what I hope is we're going to say, boys, as I look at this passage, I, I understand as I think about God's judgment, I understand what I don't understand. I have a lot to learn about the nature of my sin about the nature of God's holiness and about the incredible provision in his son Jesus Christ. Look at the text with me if you if you will. Let's let's talk a little bit about the story and then I'm going to kind of as we talk about what's happening here I'm going to stop every now and then and, and give kind of a principle that I find helpful and hopefully you'll find helpful as well. The story begins in verse 1 with God speaking to Moses. He says avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites and say okay, now what do you mean what what kind of vengeance? Well, remember Whenever we were in chapter 25, some bad things had happened. In fact, earlier than chapter 25, remember as the people of Israel came to that last place they're coming to in the book of Numbers before they start going into the the promised land, they're there encamped on the plains of Moab, and the people in Moab kind of get a little freaked out as they see what's taking place. And this Balak contacts Balaam. And he says, Balaam, I need you to curse the people. And Balaam comes and he can't curse the people. There's an obstacle and it's it's God. And so Balaam, after he's unable to curse the people, he leaves at the end of chapter 24. And we see somehow in chapter 25, he said, okay, here's here's what you need to do. God, Balaam realizes, is not going to break his covenant. God is not going to break his promise a promise to provide for this people. You're not going to be able to turn God from his people. What you need to do, says Balaam, in a moment of perverse, wicked genius, this is what you need to do. You can't turn God from his people, so you need to turn his people from him. And he tells the Moabites, look, you need to get them engaged in your worship. Now, the worship of the, the Moabites the, the, and the Midianites here, the, the Midianites were kind of this loose, con- uh, configuration of various tribes. The Moabites were, were part of that. He says, what you need to do is you need to get them involved in your worship. And the worship of the Midianites was was a horrific type of worship. It was a worship that involved gross sexual immorality. Uh, there were male and female prostitutes. There was there was sexual abuse that took place in their worship. There was also uh, just uh horrific sacrifices that took place there as you look at archaeological evidence and you look at the biblical record there are examples of child sacrifices that take place in the midst of all this there were there were horrific horrific things done by this by the by the, this people in fact as you look at this region that the Israelites are supposed to enter into and to, to to conquer it's a it's a region that seems to have not just a group of people devoted to a special type of wickedness it also seems like there is a a demonic stronghold on on this this area. There is a, a special manifestation of demonic activity and horrific practices that, that that are hard for us to even even talk about. In fact, we can't really talk about them in depth in in this context. So, what happened in Numbers twenty five? The Israelites were enticed by these people to engage in their cultic practices within their the worship of Baal there at Peor, and twenty four thousand Israelites lose their lives as a result of their their engagement in these pagan practices. So you come here to chapter thirty one, and, and you see that they're to they're to uh, enact vengeance on these people, and, and not their vengeance, but it says it's it's God's vengeance. It's the Lord's vengeance. And we also see here, as you begin looking at these first few verses of chapter 31, God also tells Moses, it says, um, avenge the people of Israel and the Midianites, and afterwards you shall be gathered to your people. So in other words, based upon Moses' sin from chapter 20, Moses' sin is about to be dealt with here also. And I'll look here at the text, just a couple more things here, notice real quickly. As you look at verses 6 through 12, you see that they're sent out to war, and there's victory. They, they go to war, and there's a thousand from each of their tribes. Phineas, who was also involved in chapter 25 with stopping the plague through his righteous actions and, and stopping the pagan practices of, of immorality, he's also involved in this in this uh, battle, and they go out, and they are victorious. It's a horrific battle. Uh, five of the kings of Midian are killed, and uh, Balaam also meets his demise here, and they take these captives and, and plunder, and it's, it's horrific, and it's horrible, but it seems like success. It seems like the plan was, uh, was successful. Now, we know there's more coming, but at the moment, it looks like a horrific victory, but victory. It's terrible if sin is dealt with, but it's dealt with. Here's the first principle that I want you to look at with me. The first principle is this as I as I look at God's judgment here, my sin is more dangerous than I realize. There were many people in this story who didn't realize that their sin was going to end in their death. Moses, in a moment of weakness, commits this sin, and eventually that sin is going to lead to his death and his inability to enter in the promised land. Uh, Balaam, you know, Balaam thinks that he has found this, this loophole that will allow him to receive the prestige and the accolades that he wants. He can keep his hands clean, and the Israelites can can kind of curse themselves and he loses his life here. The Midianites, the Midianites think, okay, we've, we've achieved our objective, we've allowed the Israelites to enter into this, this practice with us, they've engaged in this worship with us, we've turned them away from their God, they don't think that there are going to be consequences for their actions, or at, the, at least they think their consequences are going to be minimal, and instead, their sin costs them their, their life. Coming to a passage like this forces me to confront the reality that sin is dangerous, and I need to resist minimizing tendencies when I talk about my sin. You know, it drives us crazy whenever someone else has done something that's in, that's uh, caused us pain. Whenever they they try to minimize it, so maybe you're you know you have a coworker, and the coworker doesn't show up for their shift, and so you have to work extra hard that shift, and and they come back and they say, "Hey, sorry about the mix-up there." you like, "It wasn't a mix-up; it was four hours of, of terror there for a while." Or you know, your coworker is. Uh, you know, makes a mistake and then they leave for the weekend, they're on vacation and they come back and they're like, oh, hey, sorry, I've, I forgot, you know, oops. And you're like, no, it's not oops. Your, your, your mess cost me a week of work and losing out time with my kids and all this stuff. And, what, you know, I want a little, not, I want some groveling here, okay? It wasn't just a mistake. This was an offense against me, you know. Don't minimize that. But, but what's our tendency when we talk about our sin? Our sin, our, our sin is described by ourselves often using very minimalistic language. Hey, you know what? I, uh, I can be a high-strung individual. You know, I'm intense. I'm kind of a shy person. Not really outward. Uh, you know what? I kind of got annoyed there. A little frustrated. You know? But what's more accurate? Hey, you know what? I'm kind of an angry person. <laughs> I can really uh, abuse people verbally. You know, I'm, I'm so self-centered. I sometimes uh, don't reach out to other people for days, and only that's when I have to. You know, my, my anger is, is so ferocious that um, I, I'm, in, I'm in line of God's eternal judgment for my anger. But, uh, yeah, let's, let's, describe, let's describe our, our sin more accurate, accurately, right? It's not frustration. It's it's a lack of love and grace toward other people. It's idolatry is is I'm upset about the things that happen in my life that I don't want to. My sin, the point is this, my sin is more dangerous than I think. And as I come to a passage like this, I'm, I'm confronted with that reality. My sin is more dangerous than I think. I can't minimize it. I need to fear it. Now, look what happens next. The people come back, and they come back from what they think is a victory, and surprise, Moses doesn't come out and say, hey guys, great job. Moses comes out, and he's, he comes out with Eliezer the priest, and he's angry. This is a very hard passage for me, again, to, to wrap my mind around. He's angry with the officers, the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of the hundreds, and he, and he says to them, Have you let all the women live? Look, there's these women here. And these women, first of all, they deserve the death penalty for what they've done. They've committed spiritual and physical adultery, both of which offenses, and we've talked about this before, carry with them the the death penalty. These women shouldn't be alive still because of the sin that they've committed. Furthermore, These are the very women who, at Balaam's advice, were involved in bringing our people into worship of a false god and cost 24,000 people their lives, and now you've brought them into our camp. Furthermore, these women and the practices that they engage in, and this is very important for us to understand, they represent a a physical and a spiritual existential threat to who we are as a people the type of worship that they engage in is going to turn us from God and not allow us to be the people that God has called us to be. In fact, as you come in the book of Judges, we see that the people didn't eradicate and, and deal with the people in the land of Canaan the way that they were supposed to. And, and so it says in, in Judges chapter 2, it says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned Yahweh, the Lord, the God of their fathers. It says they went after other gods from among the people. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned Yahweh. They abandoned the Lord and they served the baals of the Ashtaroth. We also see here. We also see here. Moses says something else. He says you also need to kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who's known a man by lying with him. In other words, the women who have been involved in this sexual immorality with the people of Israel, but all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. In other words, these these young girls, they can enter into the covenant community through the provisions that God has laid out, but everyone else needs to die. Here's the second principle as we look at these hard words of Moses. The second principle is this, my sin is more entrenched then I realize. The people of Israel thought they dealt with sin. They thought, man, we, we, we did some things and it was hard and it was terrible. But now, now, now we've dealt with this. And they come back and, and Moses says, no, guys, you don't understand. This is what God has called us to do. We are to totally eliminate this from the, the land of Canaan, this, this pagan, demonic religion. Now, I got to be careful here because I don't understand the mind of God in this. And I don't know, I don't have, we'll talk about this in just a moment, I don't have the benefit of his complete sovereign knowledge, but there's a couple things that could be going on here. First of all, God could be saying, look, we have, all of these people need to be removed in order for the people of God to live here and and for the salvific uh, plan to carry forth so that all people can receive and and hear the message of the gospel. the people of Israel need to be preserved so that the Messiah can come and salvation can be achieved through him. And to do that, this needs to take place. God could also be saying, look, um, this death, as, as horrible as it is, it's, it's actually a means of protecting the people that are being killed. And this, this is something you and I can't say, but perhaps God can say this. And it even means the eternal preservation of some of those who are killed. I don't know. I don't want to go that far. But there's that possibility that the bottom line is this. God is saying, there needs to be radical steps that take place. And these radical steps show us, they teach us, even though we don't fully understand them, they teach us how entrenched, dangerous sin is in our lives. And half-hearted attempts... To deal with sin will not be successful ultimately. There's times when I've been uh, there's times when I've been counseled. There's times when I've been counseling other other people where we're dealing with a sin issue, and there com- there comes a moment of decision. So, for example, you know maybe I'm, I'm talking with a, a husband. Who has been sinning in his marriage relationship and, and not uh, not not treating his wife in a godly way, and he admits, yeah, what I did was wrong. And, and we talk about it, and, and he says, yeah, I, I want to change. And so we say, oh, good, let's let's change some things. Yeah, let's change some things. And he's willing to do this, and he's willing to do this, and he's willing to do this. And, and then we come to some sticking point, right? We come to some moment of decision where he realizes the cost of dealing with this is much higher than i thought it was going to be that the sin cuts much deeper into my soul than i realized and i have to decide am i really willing to do this radical thing to deal with my sin so for example yeah i'll you know you, you told me to to tell my wife i love her 3 days 3 times a day sure i'll, I'll do that or uh, make the bed every morning okay I'll, we'll we'll work on that but then it comes to hey you um, as, as we talk about how your lifestyle is, is organized and things, you, there's something you need to, to really give up. Not because giving that up makes you holy, but because a holy God, because, as you love him, says, okay, you're, you're devoted to me. As you're devoted to me, you love your wife. As you love your wife, these other things have to go. And the husband has to say, boo, oh, I don't know. It means more than just some, some casual band aids on, on a problem. It means getting at the root of it, getting messy, life-changing decisions. Brothers and sisters, many of us, as we think about our sin, we, we treat it like a oopsie, right? Oops, shouldn't have done that. And we're willing to take very very casual approaches to, to dealing with it. Sin is deadly, and it's deeply entrenched. It's more entrenched into who I am than I realize. Half-hearted attempts to deal with my sin are not going to be effective. I need radical change. I need a heart transplant that begins and ends with Christ, and we'll talk about more about that as we continue. You look at verses 19 through 24, we see that there's, there's cleansing of, of those who are involved, that they engage in the, this act of cleansing, and, and, and we've talked about holiness before, but let's, let's get to the third principle. The third principle is this, my God is more holy than I realize. As I look at God and his interaction with those who are engaged in this war and the, the type of, of God that allows his people to dwell with him and how these, these people can be in relationship with him as we've gone through the book of Leviticus and now the book of Numbers, we see over and over again, God is more holy than I realize. As I contemplate God's judgment, I, I come to this conclusion. I say, okay, I can't understand this, but there are some things about God and his character that I'm going to continue to keep the forefront of my mind. For example... I am going to realize and I'm going to tell myself, okay, God is good and I am not. God is all knowing and I am not. God is judge and I am not. In other words, sometimes as I think about God's judgment horizontally, I think about this person over here, this person over here, and I begin with them and think, well, I, I don't know, I don't understand. What I need to say first and foremost is, okay, God is holy and different from me in a way that I can't even comprehend. I begin with God first, and I think, okay, God is righteous and I'm not. He's, he's holy and I'm not. He's the judge and I'm not. In fact, remember, Abraham struggles with something similar. He's talking to God, and God tells him about his plans to de- destroy Sodom, and Abraham's like, no, 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 hold on, hold on, let's, let's talk about this, and he keeps whittling God away, and, and then eventually Abraham says this, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Abraham doesn't understand God's plan, but he comes to that conclusion. And God, I also comprehend and and, and acknowledge this, God is sovereign and I am not. And God is sovereign in a way that I can't even comprehend sovereignty. Like I can think of of a person being sovereign over a group of people or over a a small realm of land, but God is is sovereign in a way that we can't even comprehend sovereignty. God created the heavens and the earth. The psalmist says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. There's no aspect of of creation that is not under God's complete sovereign authority and control. Psalm 50, verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. There is no aspect of the created realm that God is not authoritative over sovereign in a way that I cannot even comprehend. That doesn't mean there, there can't be a, a catch in my heart as I, I look at some of these things. But I say, look, God is, God is more holy than I realize as I look at these truths. Here's, here's the last thing I want you to think about, this last, this last principle. So we look at there's the dividing the rest of the spoils of war in verses 25 through 47. There's, there's an offering to, to Yahweh that's made in verses 48 through 54. The people, people bring that to him. But here, here's the fourth principle. My, my God is more loving than I realize. My God is more loving than I realize. And You say, well, Daniel, how, how can you come to that conclusion? Well, well think about this. As we, th- as we think about the end of this passage with ending in, in worship of Yahweh, realize this. First of all, the, the judgment of the Midianites, and really ultimately of all the people in Canaan, it's, it's a picture of a coming judgment. Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He talks in Second Thessalonians about a flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And you say, okay, oh, hold on, Daniel. I thought you said this, this principle was about God being more loving than I realized. And you're saying that God's judgment here on the people is a picture of his future judgment. That doesn't solve any problem for me. Well, stay with me. Because this judgment here is not just a picture of God's judgment on the wicked in the future. This judgment on the people of Midian, men, women, sons, this judgment is also a picture of God's judgment on his own son. Now that's hard to wrap your mind around. Now if I struggle to understand how can a, how can a holy, loving God punish the wicked, and, and I do struggle with that, How much more do I struggle to say, how can a holy God bring judgment on a perfectly righteous man who is his own son? Now, that I really don't understand. But in that picture, what do I see? I see God's love for me; that He would be willing to exact that judgment on His Son, so that I don't have to bear His wrath. Habakkuk he struggles. He says, "God, I don't understand. I don't understand how can these how can these Babylonians be an instrument of your, of Your righteousness on on people who aren't as bad as they are? I don't get it." But you know what Habakkuk says? He says. He says, "But the righteous shall live by his faith." He says that in Habakkuk two, um, verse four, and then he concludes. He says at the very end of, of his of his uh, book, there he says, though the f-, he, he talks about this coming judgment. He says, although all these things should happen, the the the, the terror of judgment, uh, no no blossom on the fig tree, no fruit on the vines. Uh, no no flock in the field, no herd in the stall. Despite all that stuff, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Paul, as he comes to Romans 9 and he wrestles with the Israelites not receiving the, the gospel message, he comes and he he says at the end, of, of, of uh, 9, he says, okay, it's, I, I know it's not that God isn't good. I know it's that God isn't sovereign. He comes to chapter 10, he says, I know the gospel has been given to the Israelites. I know that someday, he says in chapter 11, some of the Israelites will be saved. He, but he doesn't come to a conclusion. He, says, he never says, and now I finally understand it. In fact, listen to what he says. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. I don't understand, he says, but who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And he, he, it concludes with worship, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For Paul even though he doesn't understand in the final analysis all the aspects of God's judgment, he understands God is unfathomable and he says, you know what? I'm going to respond in worship. My inability to understand God's judgment teaches me something. It teaches me I do not understand my sin. I don't understand how dangerous it is. I don't understand how entrenched it is into my soul. Thinking about God's judgment recognizing tells me I don't, I don't understand the depth of God's holiness. And it tells me, look, I don't understand the incredible offer of the gospel. God's call to me is to place my faith in his son, Jesus Christ, to receive his righteousness, a righteousness I don't deserve and I certainly can't fathom, and to be saved from the terror of God's judgment and to proclaim that to others. It's a beautiful truth, this truth of the gospel, and it compels me, even in my lack of understanding, to worship. Let's pray, and then we'll pray the prayer of an addiction together and conclude our service this morning as we meditate on these truths. Father, we love you this morning. We recognize that in our our, our finite nature we cannot comprehend the infiniteness of, of you, our God, our great and sovereign God. But we worship you, we love you, and we recognize your love for us, even in a passage that, that causes us to recoil as we we see bloodshed and and terrible things happen. We see in that the picture of you providing our salvation through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. And Father, we trust in him. We place our faith and our confidence in him alone this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. And now, to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, both now and forevermore, and in the name of, our, of God's Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, God, for your blessing upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dismissed. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.